what it is rjla family i am angela birdsong your conversation peace host on radio justice la morning wake up call at radiojustice.org for something new or unusual to talk about for stimulating conversation for you on the bus train plane or simply at the water cooler or in cubicle nation today on conversation peace meet hannibal taboo award-winning comic book writer and poet who will discuss black comics the portrayal of black people in comic books his road to writing comic books and he will also share some tips for upcoming creators along with reading one of his published poems Hannibal Tabu, welcome to Conversation Peace. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes, and we know that you are one of Los Angeles' literary gems. Well, I, I try to shine as best as I can. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure you are just brilliant in your um, diamond tree, right? I just made up a word. I, I like it. I'll allow it. Okay, good, <laughs> good, good. Now, how long have you been a writer and when did you know that you had this gift to write? Well, I first, uh, that's interesting. I first got the idea that I needed to write a novel when I was eight. I started uh, working on this idea that just would not, would not stop in my brain. So uh, I wrote on 220 pages of college rule notebook paper not that wide stuff you know i was writing on college rule notebook paper 220 pages worth of what now i see is the worst possible story to ever be written it's it's truly abysmal but the important part is that i finished it uh and that gave me the momentum to move on to the next thing to write songs to write poems to write short stories to write all kinds of things and this drive to create came from i grew up in memphis came from boredom truth be told the world was simply not enough as it stood for me as a, a skinny black kid in Memphis with a big head and glasses. So I had to make a finer world because it didn't seem to be available to me. You were nine years old? Eight. Eight. Mm -hmm. Eight years old. And you wrote 200 and... 220 pages of college rule notebook paper, which I, as, I, as I was working on drafting and changing different things, I, I was... Uh, my third grade teacher was named Mrs. Clark. I always remember her because her brother was on the Buffalo Bills and he came to visit us, our class once. And Mrs. Clark was always like, why are you always carrying that around with you? I'm like, it's a secret. I can't tell you. She's like, okay. <laughs> because my grades were good enough and I mostly stayed out of trouble. So she was willing to give me some leeway. And yeah, I, I worked on that thing most of my third grade year. Yeah. Who, who was the first person you shared that work with? The Mrs. first Clark? person I, no, no, God, no. Uh, the first person I shared it with was, I grew up with my great aunt and uncle, and I shared it with my great aunt, who I called mom. Uh, I grew up with her. And she was like, well, baby, this is so much. And, you know, she, she did that, that old black mama uh, compliment. It's like, it's so much work. You, I can see you work so hard on it without actually saying anything qualitative about it. And uh, that was probably what I needed at the time because it's really scary bad. It's embarrassing. I'm, I'm hoping that I because I can't throw it away, but I'm hoping I remember to destroy it before I die so nobody d discovers it <laughs> after I die. Right, no. I'm like, what the heck happened to this guy? So, yeah. That, right. That no, is no, no, you both definitely do not need to destroy it before you die. I will not like listen that. to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, because that inspires those who are 
and the emphasis of their writing mm -hmm. that when they feel like you have this, you know, like, oh, I have this crappy piece of work, but it launched you to where you are now. I yes. mean, there's many years between you being eight years old and now being um, a mature man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we would hope, yes. Right. <laughs> you, so I, I hope that you don't throw away. And I hope that maybe, I don't know, maybe your wife or somebody will take a look at it and say, well, I think we can extrapolate some things. Ooh, my wife's rough. It. I can't imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But eight years old, wow. Wow, because I, I know in, in your bio, you said that you've been reading comic books mm -hmm. since the early 1980s. Mm -hmm. And when you wrote your first piece at eight years old, what was your second piece? And, and who saw that you had this gift and, and helped propel it to the next level and to help develop it? Well, it's interesting because I saw an interview with Michael Eisner where he talked about uh, the research that was done that every many successful people had one person in their life that really believed in them and really pushed them along. And uh, in my case, that was not, as I said, a qualitative thing. My great aunt, uh, Mabel Grant, spirit rest her soul, uh, she was the most unconditional, most supportive, most amazing presence in my life. And she just, anything that I wanted to do, anything that I had the inclination to do, if I was willing to put my nose to the grindstone and work towards it, they were happy to encourage me towards it. And, and I'm internally grateful for her presence in my life because I could have been a significantly more problematic individual without that. What was your, your next piece that you wrote? Uh, after that, I remember I got the idea, because prose was cool, but I was like, but comics are where it's at. So I was going to make my own comic book. But I realized I didn't really know how to draw people. I could draw vehicles and buildings and all. I understood perspective and all those things. But the two fingers and <laughs> humans are significantly more complex things to draw. So I started by finding panels of comics that I like and then tracing over them to, you know, make my own little characters and make them work. Uh, some of that worked, some of that didn't. Uh, I got, of a, I was supposed to make a 24-page book. I think I ended up 18 pages in before I realized I didn't actually know how to end it. And I never returned to that piece, but all the characters were super derivative, like knockoffs of other characters that existed. And, it was, and the coloring was done with colored pencil. I mean, it's just... Like, when I think of the production values now, I'm like, oh, oh how gauche. But <laughs> at the time, I was really focused on it. I was really determined on it. But uh, I veered from that, uh, which I don't even remember why. It was a, some kind of super team book set in space with fighting all kind of ridiculous stuff. It, it, there was not a lot of deep plot or characterization in it. But uh, I veered from that into songwriting. I wrote probably about 10 or 11 songs before uh, I moved away from a place that had a piano. And uh, but those are all on cassette tape somewhere, and they're probably in Memphis somewhere. Because you you write prose, songs, poetry, mm -hmm. comic books, mm -hmm. novels, and are you an essayist also? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, one of the things I have a degree in creative writing from USC, and one of the things that was very clear to me in that education was that what specific thing I was writing, be it journalism, be it essay, be it a marketing blurb, be it a, a, a novel, didn't really matter. The point was, did you send the message out and was the message received? The length of the message, the format of the message, that's all just frippery. Uh, so I worked very hard at making sure that I was able to clearly navigate whatever might be between myself and the audience. Uh, there was a quote from Spider Jerusalem in the book Transmetropolitan. He says, if you really are, are on it when you're writing, you can blow somebody's kneecap off. And that's the sort of energy that I tried to put in the work that I did.
Wow. Yeah, that's um, rather prolific. I'm doing that what I can. When you're, yeah, when somebody's writing can blow somebody's kneecap off or blow somebody's mind, mm-hmm. right? My mind-blowing work. Absolutely. What is what was your favorite favorite comic book that you read when you were growing up? When I was growing up, I loved, loved, loved Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, which was the story, uh, super the teenage version of Superman through ridiculous and unimportant reasons, was taken a thousand years into the future to join a team of equally uh, all all teenagers, all of which had superpowers from different planets or whatever, and they worked together. Uh, to fight for justice across the galaxy. And there was, you know, there was uh, women ones, there were shape changer ones, there were black ones, there was, uh, uh, it was, it was all kinds of, it was a super diverse crowd before diversity was even really kind of an idea. And, you know, I was able to say, oh my God, there's a black one and he's got an afro, oh my God. And, you know, and he's, he, he, Superman, he, he can stand toe to toe with him and it's really impressive. So uh, I loved that book because it strained the realm of possibility again in memphis there was not a lot really of interest happening but when i saw a supervillain took a planet full of people that was under a red sun moved the whole planet under a yellow sun so they all got superpowers and then ordered them all to fly into space and turn the heat vision on the planet to carve it into his face i was like this is where i need to be this is the work i need to be doing this is yeah this is this is this is where i'm trying to accomplish things Superboy. Mm-hmm. Superboy and the legion of superheroes love that book now you said there was a a black character and mm-hmm. in, in that particular <laughs> series. <laughs> well, why are you laughing? <laughs> okay, it's a funny story because the character and uh, the character is very problematic for some people. The character's name was Tyrock, and he had uh, these sonic-based powers where he could manipulate sound to do different things, and he could fly, and he was super strong, and he was super durable, but. He was created, and if you read the Wikipedia entry on him, you'll see this. He was created because his creators were forced to make a black character because there weren't any black characters in the book. And they were, like, given all these dictates that they thought were really ridiculous. So they tried to make this character the worst possible character that they could so people wouldn't like him. They're like, well, he's going to be, instead of Tyrone, he's going to be Tyrock. And he comes from this island that uh, 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 has former slaves that shifts out of reality and every 30 years and it only appears in our universe for a year once every 30 years and there's a this whole black society there that lives free and you know, I'm like but what they didn't realize was to me that sounded amazing <laughs> I'm like wait they don't have to deal with white people what are you talking about this is, and they built their own society and they have this superpower protector that can punch superboy in the face I want to I want to live on this island. How, how can I be involved with this? So the fact that, I mean, he had this terrible, terrible outfit with this huge disco collar and the open neck and these pointed shoes like an elf. And it's all, it's the stupidest possible thing in retrospect. But when you're a nine-year-old in Memphis and you see a black character stand next to Superboy like, uh-uh, new, new. And Superboy has to respect that. You take what you got, you know, you take what you can get there. Right, you take whatever black superhero that you can get. Yes, ma'am. Within your imagination, mm-hmm. within your books, within your community. Absolutely. Right. How have you developed black characters in your comic book writing? Well, one of the things that I work very hard to do with a lot of the characters is that I try to make sure that if it's not a black character, it's at least a black perspective on things. If uh, people are doing something that is, if people are doing something that is, you know, what we call the, in the crazification factor of white people, like, you know, uh, when they say, oh, I'm going to vote for this guy because 
he supports this one thing that's really important to me, even though it's going to ruin seven other things that are super important to me. Uh, I point those things out as ridiculous. Or in my first book, Artifacts Number 35, my first professional book, um, the opening pages have a Irish gunrunner selling sniper rifles and bulletproof vests to the Nation of Islam in Chicago. And I was writing, I was like, no one's ever going to let me get away with this. No one's ever, and nobody noticed at all. And to this day, people come up to me at conventions like, did, did you have... Did you put sniper rifles in the hands of the Nation of Islam in, to clean up their streets in, in Chicago? I'm like, I did. And I would do it again. <laughs> because I, I believe that my sensibilities will have a different perspective on everything. When I'm going through that to the characters that I have more control over, like Project Wildfire or Menthu, I create them as authentic people. I think of what are their flaws, what are their foibles, what are their favorites, what are the things that make them actual full human beings. And I try to play that into what's happening there. So even in their offhanded dialogue, you'll see, oh, this is a person who's lived a life. This is a whole individual that, you know, has experienced some things and that I can I can appreciate and I can relate to. Have you ever gotten any pushback for any of your characters or the black perspective? I have actually not because of the way I've crafted my career. I've worked very hard to only work on things that I feel I want to work on. Uh I've never gone knocking at the door of anybody. I've never really very much asked for anything. The only time I ever really submitted for anything was the Top Cow Talent Hunt. There were 11,000 stories and three won, and I was one of them. And that's literally one of the few times I've ever actually pitched or asked anybody to do anything. Everything else, either people have asked me to do it or I've done it just because I wanted to. Uh, I have a day job that's very supportive of me, very supportive of my work, and fairly lucrative. So I'm able to do whatever I feel like without having to answer to anybody without having to listen to those sorts of voices. And when I hear them, I mostly go the other way. And that goes to where we were saying off air, looking beyond the two powerhouses. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Beyond Marvel and DC Comics. Yes, ma'am. I only had one brush with DC Comics. We were doing a benefit anthology for Puerto Rico called Reconstruction. And uh, they were allowing us to pick whatever DC char Comics characters we wanted to work with. I knew a little bit about the company and their politics, so I picked characters I figured they wouldn't pay much attention to. Uh, a Latino gentleman who's a time traveler and a white girl who was a teleporter. And I, it was originally supposed to be a six-page story. After I wrote the script, they're like, great, it's got to be three pages. So I've got to figure out how to chop that story in half. <laughs> and, you know, and other little slight little, oh, DC's got this note, DC's got that note, but nothing infringed on my politics. They were, I kind of could tell, just trying to mess with me because DC Comics is, I've written a number of reviews in my column that may not have rubbed people the right way. Uh, I didn't take any of that in stride. I took the notes, I turned it back around, I turned out the work, and it's fine because it wasn't about me. It was about benefiting people who had suffered from a hurricane. It was about helping people in need. And I didn't need to put my ego into that. And what happened with that piece? Did did it do what it's supposed to do? It or did. what that project was supposed Absolutely. to do? Absolutely. Sold a lot of books. Uh, there was a lot of money being given to uh, and relief efforts uh, assisted in Puerto Rico. The book is still on sale uh, on Amazon, still generating money for it, that those specific things. Uh, I got to say I worked with DC Comics characters without having to, you know, ask because the editor of the book, he made the deal with DC to get the license, and then he came to me. He, he, he asked me, he's like, Hannibal, I need you in this book. There's a great guy named Edgardo who uh, does a book called La Borequena. And uh, he asked me, so I was like, I'll play along. Sure, whatever. And he's very happy with what came out. I'm happy with the story as it came out. And, 
you know, it, it accomplished the goals to help people. So, yeah, I'm very happy with that work. Now, what about the portrayal of brown people, of, of our Latino brothers and sisters in, in comic books? Well, again, if you look at the mainstream, you're going to see a lot of cliches. You're going to see a lot of uh, reluctant things done uh, where uh, there's a character named Vibe who's a, a Latino in, individual from Detroit. And he had a lot of character-related things that were not so forgiving. But in the same way that I embraced Tyrock, Latino people was like, oh, my God, it's a Latino character and he has powers. We love him, even though he was terrible. Uh, when church's chicken is all you have to eat, you're going to eat church's chicken and you're going to learn to like it. Uh, it was kind of that sort of thing. So so there the depiction of characters like Vibe or like there's even a character in that same team called Gypsy, uh, who, uh, as you know, is a slur against the Romani people. Uh, and there's just a lot of problematic elements with a lot of the portrayals uh, of people in color. I came up with what was called the Black Hero Origin Algorithm, which was scarily accurate and even validated by Dwayne McDuffie, where most black characters in mainstream comics either came from a criminal background, uh, were in the Olympics, uh, <laughs> or or uh, didn't come up with the idea for being a hero. They uh, borrowed the mantle of heroism from someone else. Uh, or they had electrical powers or something. There was a number of very common themes in the creation of black characters in particular that were so prevalent and so overwhelming that it was it was almost it was difficult to 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 overlook and the characters i make are nothing nothing like that whatsoever well when we come back from break we'll talk about some of the characters that you have created to inspire and uphold our african heritage wonderful yes I'm your host, Angela Birdsong, and you are listening to Conversation Piece with award-winning comic book writer, Hannibal Tabu. We'll be right back. I never thought that I could be with anyone else until you came into my life and you showed me there is love. And I think I love you. And that's true.
comics, words, and sequential art. Welcome back to Conversation Piece. I am your host, Angela Birdsong, with City of Los Angeles 2018 cultural trailblazer and comic book writer, Hannibal Taboo. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we went to break, we were talking about the diversity within comic books, Mm -hmm. the portrayal of black and brown people in the mainstream yes in in the mainstream now within indie comics mm-hmm. of which you are a part of before yes, we go into your specific books and what have you mm-hmm. are we portrayed in indie in, in the indie comics we are and in a much better way there uh, i use this quote from the singer sting a lot there's a deeper world than this tugging at your hand and when I look at works done by, like, say, for instance, Stranger Comics, uh, they have the book Niobe. They just signed a deal with HBO to do a series based upon their books. That's a black-owned company uh, created and wholly conceived by my good friend Sebastian Jones, who's been, you know, uh, if you've ever gone to Juju here in the Los Angeles club scene or seen a lot of those things, he's a regular in that sort of uh, environment. And now he's telling fantasy stories with dark-skinned elves and magicians and wizards in a way that you know never existed before so being able to see that on comic book pages with a young teenage black girl as the lead screen or is it hbo now or hbo go i don't remember which app it is now but uh one way or another it's coming to your house and you're gonna freaking like it so seeing that sort of thing seeing the black superheroes that i do you'll see stealth from william satterwhite you'll see books like uh will power uh there's so many Great other depictions, uh, Mega Woman. Uh, there's uh, the legend. Uh, oh shoot, I want to. I want to get it right. This brother from Nigeria has this really great book. This gorgeously depicted book with rich, lush colors and great line work and really professional production values. Which again, people don't expect from black people. They see black people, they think oh, this is some chitlin circuit stuff. This is gonna be print on newsprint. No, nope, no, nope, no. Nope. We're able to do. We're able to do competitive work work that you could sit next to uh, a Green Lantern book or sit next to an Avengers book and say, yeah, that makes sense there. That checks out. Uh, and as such, I'm happy to see the diversification of these ideas in the marketplace. What are some of your characters? Well, well, uh, one of the characters I like working on is Menthu. Uh, Menthu is uh, an ancient Egyptian themed superhero who lives in Los Angeles. And he... Uh, it's very close to my heart because I practice ancient Egyptian spirituality and I'm therefore, it's super easy for me to know the shorthand of things and start breaking into things. Uh, he uh, lives a double life as a football player and as a superhero and he, he kind of tries, he has a hard time balancing those things, of course, because the demands of, time demands on a professional super, a professional football player rather are pretty extreme and those lives collide, clash and collide and you know, people remember his college career, like, oh, I don't like you because your college beat my college and stuff, and he's got to deal with that sort of stuff. <laughs> uh, and, and developing that sort of thing, his mother's a community activist who lives in Lamert Park. Uh, developing those sorts of things and making those sorts of things real in the book is very rewarding to me. Also, then with Project Wildfire, which uh, I grew up in Memphis, and Project Wildfire is essentially set in Memphis. This college student sees one of those signs. He's an architecture student. He sees one of those signs, you know, participate in a medical experiment and make some extra money. And, you know, architecture, if you remember in school, is not a cheap major. So he takes it. He goes in for the experiment. He takes some injection in his arms, and he gets superpowers. Everybody else in the experiment died. (laughs) He then uses those superpowers 
to uh, fight a plague of monsters that erupt in the streets of Shelby City for him, with Memphis, essentially. Uh, we definitely made Memphis a character in there, all the way down to the pyramid on the side of the r- river, that we ultimately demolished in <laughs> a book called Interproject Torrent. So we have a lot of fun with that book. We, we create these characters because we want to see representation for ourselves. We take it very much to heart that we want to make the stories we're not seeing. We want to make the stories that we want to be reading and that if other people enjoy that as well, that's a, a great bonus. Will Watson. Will Watson. The uh, third. <laughs> the third. Right, 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 right. Uh, Will Watson, the third. And that's that particular um, book series you put in for a soldier story. Uh, no, that's Watson the Holmes. That's a uh, thing. I'm oh, yeah, two different. Okay, so okay, so Will Watson, it's multiple the third. Watson. Sorry. Right, <laughs> and then we have Watson Holmes, Doctor Watson Holmes. Doctor Watson, yes. Uh, the this publishing company called New Paradigm uh, had this book Watson Holmes, where they took the idea of Sherlock Holmes and and Doctor Watson, and instead of them being from London, they're from Harlem, and they solve adventures and have. Uh, uh, solve mysteries rather and, and have adventures all throughout that. I was hired to write the story alongside, it's actually a funny story. So I had just won the Top Cow Talent Hunt. It was announced at WonderCon 2013. And I was approached by, I was approached by this writer I know named Stephen Grant. He uh, wrote, he created the movie Two Guns with Denzel and uh, Mark Wahlberg and he's been in comics for a thousand years. And he says, Hannibal, I see you just won this thing. Maybe you can help me. I was asked to write Watson Holmes, but I, as you can see, and he pointed to himself, am as white as a sheet. He has white hair, his pale white hair, white skin. And he was like, so I don't really know if I'm qualified. So if you want to step in and maybe help me not ruin this, I'm like, does it pay? He's like, yeah. I'm like, then I'm on my way. So, <laughs> and uh, I ended up writing a lot of that with him. What well, was great to work with him because as a veteran, he'd worked on Punisher. He'd worked on G.I. Joe back in the 80s. So there was a lot of things about craft that I, as a newer writer, didn't know. So I was able to learn a lot of things about craft working from him, from structuring stories and whatnot, that made getting paid just a wonderful side bonus there. And that collection of books was nominated for an Eisner uh, alongside one of the specific stories in there, which was written by my good friend Brandon Easton. He's a TV writer who lives in Long Beach. And, uh, yeah, it was nominated for the Eisner. didn't win, but, you know, it's an honor just to be nominated. Yeah, and congratulations on on your nominations and, and your wins. Thank you. Now, the Uram Hunt winner, uh-huh. the, the Top Cow, let us know. What is the Top Cow? Top Cow is a publishing company uh, that they have. Uh, there was a TNT series several years ago called Witchblade. Uh, they also have uh, st- uh, st- books like uh, The Darkness or Magdalena. They're a publishing company that's uh, an imprint of Image Comics, which is the company that does The Walking Dead. And they try to b- foster new voices. New, new people coming into the industry. So they have a contest called the Top Cow Talent Hunt. And I read the rules. I was like, I think I could do this. I'm going to try to do this. And at the time, my wife and oldest child were on an enrichment voyage with Semester at Sea. They were going through Venezuela and South America and Central America. So I had a lot of time to myself. So I would pick up my youngest girl. She was, I think, four at the time. Pick her up from school, bring her home, play with her, feed her dinner, put her to bed, and write like a crazy person all night long. And I turned in the book. I was one of 11,000 stories that were submitted that year. And um, three of them won, and I was one of them. And I'm enormously grateful to Matt Hawkins and everybody at Top Cow for the opportunity to have my voice uh, become one heard in the uh, industry. 
Congratulations. Thank you. On that. That's that's a 11,000 submissions. Mm-hmm. And one of the three. Mm-hmm. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, Menthu. Mm-hmm. I need a t-shirt. <laughs> You know, because you know, we're we're talking about we're we're talking about the the portrayal of of black and brown people mm-hmm. in comic books, mainstream, very little, but within the indie comics, and then specifically with your comic mm-hmm. books, um, Menthu, Will Watson, mm-hmm. Doctor Watson Holmes. Mm-hmm. We need T-shirts of of those people. Now, what about the women? Are there any black women? Any brown women? Absolutely. In uh, the book uh, Street Justice that we just finished up, uh, there's a character named Faze who uh, got her powers through uh, an accident, and she criticizes Wildfire for not doing enough for the community. She's like, "You're up here fighting these gi- giant monsters, but what about the monsters in the street? What about the monsters taking our babies away from us?" And she criticizes him for what he's not doing. And it's the first time anybody really calls him on it. Uh, these are real-world issues that we deal with in our homes, at our family dinners, where it's like, oh, well, you're talking to all this noise, but what you're really doing, and so on and so forth. So bringing that dichotomy and that sense of responsibility to the book uh, I thought was very important. We spun her off into a story, which we did in the Mayan anthology, which benefited Planned Parenthood. And it's a solo story with Faze. Uh, we have lots of plans for Faze uh, in our future works, and there's a lot of other things coming up that we're working on. But yeah, Wildfire was what my co uh, co creator uh, artist Quinn McGowan started with, and we've kind of built a world around him. And one of the first things I was like, I was like, and let's spin off the Kaiju Queen, this first real black, you know, female supervillain of some sort, and let's spin off Faze, and let's do these things to give more of a plurality of of experience. Now, you said something um, previously that one of the houses that you were working with put out The Walking Dead. The Walking Dead was a comic book? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Okay, yeah. The Walking Dead is uh, one of the longest-running indie comics. It's it's creeping up on issue 200 right now, and it's it's published in black and white. It is like the... Every every time an issue comes out, I'm like, I can't believe this is still a comic book. Because uh, they've been telling that story for a long, long, long time in comics. It got picked up by AMC and then became a cultural phenomenon that it is. Uh, But Robert Kirkman, the creator, still makes comic books. He still makes lots of comic books. He's got a deal now with Netflix, with his Skybound Entertainment, to bring superhero and comic book style entertainment to them. So, yeah, I mean, you can... You can start uh, with fairly humble beginnings, but if you have certain opportunities and certain doors open to you, that can manifest in, in ways that people are like, oh, wait, you started from the bottom, now you're here? Yes, yeah, that's, that's kind of how it can work sometimes. <laughs> well, <laughs> I didn't know, <laughs> obviously, but I'm learning. I'm learning today on Conversation Peace, you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, new money. <laughs> I know I talked about new money. Before we even start it, it's for um, conversation piece audience. New Money is one of the um, comic books that he wrote mm-hmm. along in collaboration with someone else. I need new money. I need more new money. Not not in my pocket, but for me to read. Well, I'd like you to get both of those. Yes. But uh, <laughs> I, the... I was working with this NFL player named Philip Buchanan, who uh, was out of the industry and looking for ways to take the money he had made and work it in a different way, intellectual property being one of them. And he came to me with the idea that he's like, people have no idea what my lifestyle was really like as an NFL player and how crazy it really got. 
Uh, so he came up with the idea of looking at the show Entourage. He's like, what if not just one of the people in the group was rich? Everybody's rich. There's a football player, there's a boxer, there's a singer, it's a soccer player. And what would their life be like? So listening to stories that he had had and stories that I knew from my time as an entertainment journalist, I basically kind of crafted a pastiche of ideas together and was able to use that and create these characters that are larger than life, but not really, uh, completely ridiculous. And they're a group of young people who got um, I mean, well, some of them, they're in their 30s or whatever, but they got way too much money way too soon and have no sense and, and act it in everything that they do. So that story was very, it was difficult because some politically, some of the things didn't exactly rub me the right way. They didn't match my own personal sense of morality, but I wanted to tell the truth as they lived it, the truth as they saw it. So, Such as the blowjob scene. <laughs> Which is so much more graphic than I originally wrote it. But they were like, no, we need to go graphic. We need to go. I'm like, if that's what we're going to do, that's what we're going to do. I, I, I was uh, brought onto that by, actually, it's funny you mentioned Watson Holmes because the creator of Watson Holmes was this writer named Carl Ballers. This black uh, gentleman who is a editor at Marvel. He's an editor at Valiant Comics right now. And he was like, I'm not the right guy for this, but I know who he is. And he picked up the phone, he called me, and he brought me in. And Philip loved me, and I loved working with Philip. And we all worked together to create that book and... Yeah, it's a hoot, but other than the jetpack, all of that stuff pretty much happened. <laughs> all that stuff is actually fairly close to things that actually happened in real life. So, as ridiculous as it seems, there's a much truth can do. Truth is all much always much stranger than fiction. Yeah, I think I like trashy comic books. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know how you read, you know, the dime store novel, guilty pleasures, right? Yes. Guilty pleasures. Yes, mm -hmm. I need to read some more new money, <laughs> and then I need new money to get picked up by HBO or, I, or TV One. Somebody, come I will, on, somebody. Uh, I will definitely. I will let <laughs> Philip know that you, that conversation piece is a fan. Yes, yes, I am. Okay, well, we're going to take a break. I am Angela Birdsong, and you are listening to Conversation Piece on RadioJustice.org. We'll be back with more Top Cow Talent Hunt winner, Hannibal Taboo. Travel 2,000 kilometers to hang out with us. What's up, danger? What's up, danger? Hey, didn't know they doubted us. Makes it that more marvelous. Sign them up, because I'm in this vibe, and I guess anonymous. What's up, danger? Hey, don't be a stranger, because I like how.
that Cause I like high chances that I might lose I like it all on the edge just like you Ay, I like tall buildings so I can leap off of them I go hard with it no matter how dark it is If I'm crazy, I'm on my own If I'm waiting, it's on my throne If I sound lazy, just ignore my tone Cause I'm always gonna answer when you call my phone Like, what's up, danger? Like, what's up, danger? Welcome back to Conversation Piece on RJLA. I am your host, Angela Birdsong, with award-winning comic book writer and poet, Hannibal Taboo. Mm-hmm. Hannibal. Yes, ma'am. We need you to read one of your poems. Oh, okay. Uh, I, can, yes. I can do that. I've yes. got that yes. almost queued up here. Uh, it's funny because one of my good friends is this poet named Rob Sturma, and he was putting together an anthology of superhero-related poetry. And he wanted me to contribute to this. He wanted me to contribute to this. So I uh, wrote, I had written several pieces for National Poetry Writing Month that I thought were in the right milieu. Uh, and this, uh, this is one that he ultimately picked for that anthology. It's called Frustration, the Gospel of Lex Luthor. Because, of course, I wasn't going to write a superhero piece. I was, of course, going to write a supervillain piece because that's, you know, kind of my jam, as they say. So uh, this is Frustration, the Gospel of Lex Luthor. I first split the atom when I was 12 years old. While waiting for my high school diploma, I proved the Hodge conjecture and devised my first weapon of mass destruction. Profitable patents while waiting for microwave popcorn. It's been decades since I sat in a barber's chair, my best friends are pathological psychopaths, and instead of being lauded as the finest mind humanity has ever developed, I'm considered a criminal, a deviant, a villain. My 12-year-old mind found it all so simple, never having access to Oppenheimer's notes, red hair still waiting to be born underneath my pasty chest, complicated mathematic equations like music in my mind, and I hummed as I wrote them out, sang aloud as I contained the reaction that powered the lab I had in the gardener's shed for the next two years. Without the shadow of that invader fluttering over my head, I could be anything. President wasn't big enough, standing astride worlds of Finance and commerce took less focus than urinating. My intellect could administrate galaxies. Power contained in my all-too-human mind meat could follow the paths of 6,000 gamma waves across seven parsecs while making a sandwich and solving world hunger. But I can't. Can't concentrate on curing cancer or solving any Rubik's Cube in 14 moves. I can't sit down to write all four symphonies I've had in my head since the night I lost my virginity. All I can do is look up in the sky and dream about the day I'll bring it down to earth. 
Frustration, Gospel of Lex Luthor. Lex Luthor. Is that one of your your characters that you develop? No, that's uh that's the main villain of uh DC Comics Superman. He's uh the, the, the thorn in Superman's side since at least the nineteen forties. Uh possibly before then. But uh yeah, it's I, I, I looked at the character and I looked at a lot of things that I go through, you know, uh people who are significantly more powerful than I am, people who have significantly more access and more opportunity and more choices. And no matter how smart I am, no matter how good I am, it's not enough. And that sort of thing really kind of resonated with me and my experience. So I can see where you're coming from, Lex. I can dig it. Sometimes you got to take Superman down. <laughs> Sometimes you got to take Superman down. Right. Your production team, mm-hmm. the the various production teams that you have worked on, who have invited you to mm-hmm. to write with them what does a comic book writing production team looks like and right now we're going to get into the part of giving some tips for upcoming writers and creators how to make the donuts absolutely so in a traditional uh mainstream sense there are about six or so people in the stream uh, at least an editor begins the process by he would have a book that he's already working on, be it Superman, Spider-Man, whatever. And he would need to hire somebody to work on that. So he will hire a writer. More often than not, this comes from people they know, which is enormously insular and enormously white. But, you know, that's business. Uh, every once in a while it's not, but it mostly is. <laughs> the writer then will say, what's happening with the characters now? Do you have anything that you want me to be doing? And can I just kind of go nuts otherwise? Or the editor will say, well, what ideas do you have for this? And the writer will pitch it. The editor will say, that's not good. This is good. Go with this. And he'll go off and write a script. The average comic book script is about 20 to 22 pages. Uh, It can be done fairly quickly if you're very determined. But uh, depending on what sort of writing you do. Alan Moore, one of the most lauded comic book writers in the industry, will write a 150-page script for a 22-page book. Uh, I write somewhere in the neighborhood 40, 50. 30, 30, 30 to 50 pages normally because I include a lot of links to references like this should look like this and this should look like this and this is the expression they should have and this and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of hyperlinks in the scripts that I do. I do what's called full script, which gives the artist everything they need to know on how to do it. Uh, the less popular Marvel style is where you write just kind of a plot. On page one, this happens. On page two, this happens. On page three, this happens. The artist figures that out and then you go back in and fill out the dialogue. Felt like doing the same work twice to me, but whatever. After the writer, uh, the script is turned in, and uh, if the editor's happy with it, it's sent on to what's called a penciler. A penciler does initial drawings to kind of sketch out the way it's supposed to do. It's not super detailed, but some pencilers, like Robert Roach, who I collaborate with on Menthu, are super detailed in their pencils, so the inks are just a very bare finish. Inking is the next step, which is where another artist comes in and finishes it, makes it the lines look exactly perfect, which is uh, a process that can be done at the s- same stage as penciling, but sometimes isn't. Professionally, it's normally separated because it allows uh, greater speed in production and greater quality. Uh, after that, the colorist comes in, and the colorist lays out the visual tableau of the colors, making everything work the right way with shadings and, and perspective, and that's really tricky because I tried to do it in Photoshop. I thought I was a graphic designer. I don't know nothing about coloring. Coloring comic books is hard, so yeah. And after all those people are done, the last person in the production chain is the letterer, who 
lays out the sound effects and the word bubbles and the captions, all those things, which is really a super involved art in and of itself, making sure that if you're reading a comic book and you notice the lettering, it's probably too much. Uh, the lettering should be such a seamless part of the experience that it fades into the background almost in your reading. So uh, after all those people are done, it goes to the production staff. The production staff lays it out into either a PDF or an EPS file or lots of, depending on what your printer specifically wants or if you're going digital. And then you ship that out to the world. Uh, if you're working in print comics, you're probably going to end up sending that comic to Diamond Comic Book Distributors, which is a monopoly, the only one that really exists in the uh, uh, business really these days and they have access to almost every comic book retail shop that is in existence in the united states and that's how comic books get to market uh you could also go digitally through things like comiXology which is owned by amazon and uh, they have almost a monopoly on the digital space but it's less it's less brutal than what diamond has over the physical space and that's in a nutshell how comics happen you as an indie comic you have to go to those 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 two um, um, publishers. Contraire, Marcel. No, I don't. Okay. <laughs> As an indie, there are a wide variety of other ways to do. For example, Wonderman Comics that I work with, a lot of what they do is they ship books through what's called Hoopla Digital. Hoopla Digital has a deal with almost all the libraries in the country. So let's say you have a Los Angeles public library card. You go, you can check out my books, Irrational Numbers, Scoundrel, Time Corps. You can get those books, read them for free, and I still get paid. Well, let me correct that. I've already been paid. Nate Wonderman still gets paid. <laughs> the publisher still gets paid. Uh, and in doing so, he's able to expand the reach of his work a lot more than he would otherwise. Uh, in addition to the aforementioned comicsology on Amazon, there's drive through comics. There's, uh, there's Peep Game Comics, which is a predominantly black comic book uh, space for that sells digital books. Uh, you can put your books on Gumroad, which is a place where you can market your own materials. There's a lot of options in the digital space, at least, and that's where a lot of indie players go, as well as selling books at conventions. You go set up a table, you hawk your wares to people who come through, and you sell hand-to-hand. -hand. Sebastian Jones, who I mentioned from Stranger Comics, is the best in the world. Then. Nobody does it like Sebastian. He is amazing, and his, that's why his works have stood the test of time because he's able to take them to people, show them to people, and talk to them about them. And people are like, yes, I'm on board with this. I want to be a part of this. New money. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep saying new money. I, I, want... I will email Philip when I leave here. I will do that. Yes, yes, yes. And, and, and Philip, uh, please keep Hannibal Tabu as part of that team. Happy to help. <laughs> <laughs> Black Geek channel what what is that uh one of the things i work with is called it's complicated which is a uh, uh, a means by which a lot of the pro programming that i do be it radio shows or um uh, comic book panels or podcasts or whatever that, that's where that happens and it started out when i was hired to do this thing i was supposed to go into a partnership with this gentleman named jeff katz who'd worked at uh sony pictures for a lot of years and he had was it sony or fox no it was fox because he, he worked on wolverine yeah and he wanted to make all these niche geek channels, one for black people, one for uh, uh, wrestling fans, one for, and make these specific channels that would essentially become uh, kind of a CNN for geeks, uh, which was going great until he ran out of money. And then <laughs> once he ran out of money, I was like, well, it's not going to stop me. I'm going to keep going. And I kept kind of uh, the channel alive, but I've, I've turned it more to producing 
uh, artifacts now, be they like we just did a big panel for Lion of Judah, this project we're doing with the Marley family, uh, Bob Marley's family. We did the panel for that. We have the video available now online of that panel showing what we we're talking about and a lot of the artwork. So those are the sorts of things that it's complicated brings. It's a, a I borrow a, a page from this one line from Lupe Fiasco doing it for the block and the blogosphere. Uh, it's a digital experience for geeks of color or people who like to get down like them. Black Geek Channel. Yes, ma'am. Now, how can we find you? What are your websites? How can we pick up these comic books, etc.? All right. Well, every week on Wednesday, you can find new free web comics on operative.net. That's O-P-E-R-A-T-I-V-E.net. Uh, we're currently doing Wildfire Wednesdays with Project Wildfire, The Once in the Future King. Well, I think that's season nine of the book we're doing. I can't remember. Anyway, um, uh, my personal website is HannibalTaboo.com. You can also find uh, all sorts of things on, uh, you know, of interest to black geeks at it's complicated.tumblr.com. Uh, complicated spelled with a K because, you know, black people. Uh, <laughs> you know what we do. Yeah. Uh, and I have my reviews come out every Thursday by 11.30 a.m. on comicbookresources.com, the buy pile. I've been doing that there since 2006. And I am syndicated on the iHeartRadio podcast, Nerdorama with Mo and Tawala, which is out every Wednesday by about 9 a.m., if memory serves. Uh, I'm like, website, website, website podcast reviews i'm sure oh right and the radio show and i'm doing a bi-weekly radio show also called it's complicated with kqbh uh community built radio out of baldwin hills 101.5 fm low power fm station that you can find online at lpfm.la and i think i haven't forgotten anybody so nobody should be mad at me <laughs> you are busy what's next for you well, the next big thing that I'm working on is, as I said, The Lion of Judah, which is this sprawling historical epic, uh, which is sponsored by and approved by Bob Marley's family. We also have the rights holders uh, for the music catalog, so I can use all the lyrics, I can use all that incorporated in it. I'm doing that alongside my operative network collaborator, Robert Roach, and uh, I'm adapting that from a series of teleplays into a series of 50-page graphic novels that we expect will hit market by December of this year. Uh, we're still negotiating some of those technical points, but for me, it's just writing. So, you know, I'm like, those are business things. I don't have to worry about those. Uh, and that's the next biggest thing that I'm going to be working on for some time. It's, it's a long-term commitment for me, as well as making sure we keep up with Project Wildfire, The Once and Future King, which runs through June. And we'll be starting another season in the f late fall or early winter. Uh, we're going to be starting that again, as well as I probably will be at least on one panel at San Diego Comic-Con. So... I, I'm uh, on top of, of course, you know, my family life, my day job, my, <laughs> uh, trying to get a nap, which I haven't really slept well since 1979, things like that. Now, now before off air, we had talked about you, you, you mentioned the, the business side. Mm -hmm. You said that the person who created Wolverines mm -hmm. um, did not get the best deal. True. Lin yeah. Wein, uh passed away very recently. Uh, super great guy. He created Wolverine, and uh, who's one of the most famous comic book characters ever from the X-Men. And he did not see... He, let's just say he was not rolling in a Testero. He was not rolling in a Lamborghini or Murcielago or whatever the new model is. What's the tip for upcoming writers or for current writers on how to handle that business side? Well, here's the thing. You're... Any creator who works, does work for hire, is going to lose things. They're going to create things that are going to be exploited beyond their uh, ability. 
The trick is making sure that that works for you. So, for example, I mentioned Robert Kirkman earlier who did The Walking Dead. Robert Kirkman took a successful indie comics career, went to Marvel, wrote some very high-profile books for them that didn't necessarily introduce a lot of new ideas, but they were newish, and used that to build his profile. He then turned that attention back to The Walking Dead, expanding the audience for his own book, expanding his own ideas and his own things. So he was able to then market that as a package to Netflix. They gave him a truck full of money, probably two or three trucks full of money, uh, to develop content for them, and he's now able to do what he wants. Uh, I call it the George Clooney model. I do one thing for the companies and one thing for me. And by doing that, I try to maintain a balance between my own creative desires and the business necessities that happen because... As Morris Day told Jimmy Jam and Ter- Terry Lewis, this ain't going to last forever. You know, <laughs> you got to do what you can do, and you got to keep moving. And, and these companies don't love you, uh, and people who think that they do are often in for a rude surprise. Handle your business. Before your business handles you. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies to exhibit. <laughs> right. Dot your I's and cross your T's. Mm-hmm. Do you see any future coming with black comic books? Absolutely. Black comic writers. Absolutely. Uh, as I've mentioned earlier with Sebastian's success and his new HBO deal, which was announced with Deadline, there is a market for our stories. There, I, I was able to travel to Ghana last December, and I was, uh, I was really able to see that there is a, a, a much broader scope of content than we even understand. You know, I was able to listen to Stoneboy or Quasi Arthur and music that I would never have heard here that are of amazing high quality. So if we can keep creating things and more importantly, be reliable with it. The reason why people never worry about the X-Men is because next week there's going to be another X-Men comic, no matter what you say, no matter what you do. Uh, if you keep churning out the work, if you're consistent, uh, you're going to be able to build a body of work that will be undeniable. And that means finishing things. That means not the difference between a professional and somebody who's just talking is that a professional has a thing to show for it. They have finished something. They have completed it and they have a product to show. And a lot of people are just really just talking. Uh, I don't believe in that. That's not the way I was raised. That's not, not, that's not the way I was raised. That's not the way the hustlers of the streets of Memphis showed me how to do it. And that's not the way I'm showing my kids how to do it. So we gave out your website. Mm-hmm. I also saw that we need to vote for you for a Webby Award. Give that information and that site and how we can vote for you before we close out the show. I think it's just WebbyAward.com. I was on the Nerdist documentary focusing on the impact of Black Panther, talking about the creation of it from Stanley and Jack Kirby all the way to the redefining of it by black writers like Reggie Hudlin and Christopher Priest. And that is nominated for a Webby Award, and it looks like I'm, it's going to win. So I'm very excited about that. I think voting ends this week. I don't actually remember. Appreciate it. For, for you. Hannibal, it's been such a pleasure. And what I didn't say at the top of the show is I personally know Hannibal. <laughs> Hannibal is a family friend. He and my first cousin, Mpu Abu Kamut, that Hannibal is, is a close family friend of, of the bird songs. And, and we love him dearly. And I am so um, appreciative that you were able to give me some time out of your very busy schedule to sit with me on Conversation Piece. I love y'all back. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you to my Conversation Piece guest, journalist, poet, business owner, and award-winning book writer, Hannibal Tabu. Go to HannibalTabu.com and Operative.net for his comic books, 
and other writings and other productions that he is involved in. Thank you to Leslie Radford, the brain behind RJLA, Adam Rice, program director, Joseph Tucker, engineer and my producer, Michael Washington of MWASO for the opening and closing theme song, and always you, our RJLA family. Reach us on Radio Justice Facebook. Give us some love. Give us some likes. As you listen to us worldwide, anytime on RadioJustice.org. Once again, I'm Angela Birdsong, thanking you for allowing me to share this special experience of conversation piece on Radio Justice LA Morning Wake Up Call with you. Remember to be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be brave, be courageous, and let all that you do be done with love.